Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preacher's contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome, friends, back to Godsplaining. My name is Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, and I'm joined today by Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic and Father Gregory Maria Pine. Today, we are presenting to you the readings and prayers of the fifth Sunday of Lent. We, so we've entered properly into the season of Passion Tide. You may see in your churches veiled images and statues, and perhaps we'll comment on that. But certainly from the readings and prayers of the church, we're preparing to enter more deeply into the Lord's Passion. Uh, but before we offer anything profound, Father Gregory, Father Jacob Bertrand, how are you? I would say that I am doing well. Um, is there anything that I can add to that? Um, I met another American in Switzerland. Uh, that sounds like, um, the kind of crazed and, um, terrified revelation of somebody who's been like closeted in a strange country for the past five months. And that's because it is, um, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I met an American, uh, this cool couple, uh, who lives in Geneva with their three kids. And so that's like two hours away from Freeburg. So I, I, we spent time on Lac Le Mans, which uh, I guess is Lake Geneva, but in French speak. And it was, it was wild. It was like the first time I'd done that because I've been living under a rock for five months. So um, yeah, I would say that I'm, I'm pumped about life, but I can't seem too pumped or then I seem even crazier uh, than I already do. So yeah, things are going well. Father Jacob Bertrand? I, too, was trying to think of something exciting and new to say, and I didn't really come up with anything, even though I had extra extra time while Father Gregory was talking about his outing, uh, which was riveting, really. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I did not go to Lake Geneva. I have been here in D.C. Um, so, yeah, just gearing up for Holy Week, and uh, that's kind of it. So nothing really new or exciting to report on, on our end. It's getting a little warmer, um, getting over daylight savings. I hate daylight savings, uh, so I'm... I've adjusted, I guess, now to waking up in the pitch black again. So it's great. Does does wonders. So that's it, though. That's the most exciting. Daylight savings is the most exciting thing in my life right now. So there you have it. I wanted to say to Father Gregory's comments, you know, something something a la Sesame Street, like, look, kids, it's always nice to make a new friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I recovered, and then I couldn't resist, you know. So my my prudence was in effect for about thirty seconds. Hey, well, it mattered then. It kind of matters now, but it matters less. Uh, yeah, no, I I deserve all Sesame Street rejoinders with regard to my crazed disposition. So you know, I'll take it. Well, here we are now, preparing our hearts for the Word of God. So <laughs> let us pray. By your help, we beseech you, Lord our God that we may walk eagerly in that same charity with which out of love for the world your Son handed himself over to death. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Father Jacob Bertrand, why don't you take us into the first reading? A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will, it will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand to lead them forth from the land of Egypt, for they broke my covenant, and I had to show myself their master, says the Lord. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I no longer will no longer will they have need to teach their friends and relatives how to know the Lord. All from the least to greatest shall know me, says the Lord, for I will forgive their evil doing and remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this first reading, we have one of the iconic, one of the kind of privileged announcements of the New Covenant from the Old Testament. So the prophetic books rise to a kind of fever pitch uh, around the time of the exile with anticipation of the coming Messiah who will deliver his people from their bondage, deliver his people from their sin. And that's certainly at work in what we hear here uh, from, from the prophet. And there's an image which the prophet uses, which the prophet adduces, which I think is especially instructive, uh, which is itself an image of instruction. So this idea that the Lord took them by the hand to lead them forth. This idea of taking by the hand is one that recurs throughout the scriptures, and um, St. Paul takes it up when he speaks of the pedagogy of the old law. In the letter to the Galatians, he speaks of the old law as just that, a pedagogue. And I guess in the ancient understanding or in the ancient practice, a pedagogue would have been a slave of the household who led the free children of the household to their tutor, to their instructor. And along the way, they would kind of drill them in their exercises so as to prepare to hand them off to the master himself so that they could be furthered in their, uh, you know, whatever discipline it was that they were being instructed in. But there's this idea, you know, that, that a pedagogue holds by the hand, leads to fullness, and ultimately hands off, as it were. And St. Thomas actually takes up this theme when describing the sacred liturgy. Uh, he speaks the, of the sacred liturgy as uh, a monoduxio, a leading by the hand. So um, what we perceive here in the prophetic announcement, what St. Paul takes up to describe uh, the Old Covenant, and what St. Thomas applies to the liturgy is just, I mean, it's broadly true of salvation history. The Lord uses sensible things uh, as a way by which to take our hands and to lead us in the fullness, into the fullness of um, non-sensible realities, which is to say he leads us by visible things to invisible mysteries. So the, the covenant into which we are being led is itself the deepened, uh, the perfect relationship with God, to which the Lord Jesus Christ gives testimony and expression, and into which he invites us by the shedding of his blood, by his rising from the grave, his ascending to the right hand of the Father, his reigning in glory. But I think it's 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 wonderful, it's beautiful, uh, that the image itself is just very humble, uh, and it's very close, it's very near. A literal taking by the hand, uh, which is at once strong and firm, uh, but also gentle and tender. So such is the way in which the Lord leads us. So we've commented before in, uh, on the on the podcast about where where is the, where is the Lord's law found? Where is the law of the Lord? I have to say that very slowly because up here in New England, sometimes people say the law of the Lord, and it's <laughs> it's unclear what exactly that is. But that phrase means the law of the Lord, hmm. and. Uh, of course, for the people of Israel, the law of the Lord is written on the stone tablets, and it's written there um, uh, and brought to the people by Moses. And then the law is expanded in the things that are written by scribes and much commented on and, and kept in various traditions um, for Israel, uh, especially those traditions surrounding worship in the temple, 
um, Israel's precious cult. But the claim that the prophets begin to develop is that the law of the Lord will be written on every heart. Um, so one thing that we find ourselves um, in tension with as modern people is that we want to say that um, the law is just within me or that I am the sole arbiter of my life. We have this uh, radical individualism each of us are facing. But the the law of the Lord written on our hearts means that our self, you know, who I truly am, will be fulfilled insofar as I freely choose to follow the things of the Lord. And that it's not the pursuit of my own destiny that will satisfy the deepest desires of my heart insofar as I contrive it or make it up. But, but my greatest happiness consists in fulfilling what the Lord has planned to me and planned for me and being faithful to those things which he has put there on my heart. Um, so we can discover them joyfully anew. We can be amazed sometimes to reveal what is there. But God's invitation, which is first made to his people, is uh, revealed to have an, uh, an even more particular extension, a more immediate invitation, because this law is found not just on stone tablets, but written uh, by the hand of God, even upon our very hearts. One of the things that uh, is particularly captivating about Jeremiah uh, is that through much of his prophecy, he his, his prophecy and, and the words that he speaks and the warnings that he gives are, are often pretty pretty dire. You know, the Israelites are not, are not sitting well, are not in a, in a good place with God, with themselves when Jeremiah is called to prophesy on behalf of, on behalf of God. So much of what Jeremiah writes is, is, um, you know, condemning the people, exhorting the people to return to their God. And I think one of the beautiful things of Holy Week uh, that we, that we get to read in some of the liturgies are the, are from the lamentations of Jeremiah that are so particularly poignant and sort of begging, uh, begging the faithful to return to God. But the, the reading that we have for this Sunday, the first reading comes from the 30th, uh, from the, right, the 30th chapter, 31st chapter of the book of Jeremiah, which is situated within a handful of chapters in Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33, that are sometimes called the book of consolations or, um, yeah, I guess really the book of, if it's given a title, the book of consolations that in, in the end, towards the end of Jeremiah's prophecy, there, there's cause for hope. There's cause for hope. And uh, Jeremiah often reflects on our Lord's faithfulness. And it's particularly found here in this reading, as Father Gregory was talking about the establishment of, of the new covenant. And as Father Patrick was talking about, or the, yeah, the reestablishment of the relationship between the Israelites, between the people of God and, and God himself in this new covenant that also foreshadows the, the new covenant in Christ um, by talking about, you know, as Father Patrick was, was mentioning that the law no longer written on stone tablets, but on the very hearts of believers, of the very hearts of us. One of the things that captures, I think, my attention in a, in a particular way in this reading is the way in which God um, God works with us, the way in which God reveals himself. Father Gregory spoke about being led by the hand, and then Father Patrick was talking about Jeremiah's um, Jeremiah explaining that the law will be now written on our hearts. And then uh, the last couple lines of the reading, Jeremiah also prophesies that we will come to know the Lord. We will know him. Um, so we have this whole body, mind, the, the entirety of the person, our heart, our, our hands, our, our mind are, are all so um, intimately entwined with God that God wants us to know him. 
God wants us for himself, not just as, not just as somebody, not just as a, as a people who follows laws written down on tablets or in a book, but um, as a people that are peculiarly his own. That's always a hard word to say. I was kind of thinking in my mind, don't mess it up. As people that are his, because he loves us, because we've been created for us. And um, we see here in this, in this prophecy of Jeremiah that, that our Lord has a deep and intimate love for us personally and us entirely. Um, but this, as we're, you know, as we move from the Old Testament to the New into that, the fulfillment of the New Covenant and the Incarnation, and in the passion of, of our Lord, we see just how deep that love is and just how all giving and all desirous our Lord is of us. So this, this reading is, is totally apropos of that and, and preparing and getting our minds oriented to, to what is to come. So let us turn now to the second reading, a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. In the days when Jesus Christ was in the flesh, he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have this line in the letter to the Hebrews about about Christ being made perfect, and it's interesting to you know to think about what that means, but also the use of that word in the scriptures. If we were to to scan through the New Testament um, and count all the times the word perfect was used, uh, we we if we counted correctly, would count twenty three times, and of those twenty three times that the word this word perfect is used. In the New Testament, nine of those are in the book of, or in the letter to the Hebrews. So nine times the author of the letter to the Hebrews refers or talks about something being made perfect. Um, and in this case, Christ being made perfect. Uh, but that, you know, that begs the question in a way, well, what does it, what does it mean for Christ to be made perfect? Isn't he God? What is, what does that mean? Um, well, what the author is referring to here, this this perfection, this bringing to completion, is uh, refers to um, if we look at the how the the old covenant, the the practices of the old covenant, uh, were unable to perfect the individual. The ritual practices of the old covenant cannot perfect the soul, cannot perfect humanity. So through through this new covenant, through Christ's sacrifice, and Christ's sacrifice itself um, is perfecting. Uh, perfecting of Christ's humanity, that he, in the act of giving himself, makes himself perfect, the perfect sacrifice, and fulfills um, fulfills what is, what is needed to atone for our sins. It's not as if God is not perfect and then somehow made perfect, but that it's, it's a bringing to fulfillment. Um, Christ uh, is made perfect in his humanity, but there's also this great um, connection to the Old Testament um, to the Old Testament sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the word perfect is used to talk about the rite of ordination, um, that the, the, the priest who is being ordained, his hands are made perfect or his hands are fulfilled so as to offer the sacrifice of, of, of the Old Covenant. So we see that in this sort of perfecting of Christ's humanity, humanity through, his, through his own sacrifice, through his own obedience to the Father, he himself in his humanity that is united to his divinity is made entirely perfect, the entire perfect uh, sacrifice, the perfect lamb without blemish. This has obviously import into our own lives as Christians, as disciples of Christ, because 
that sacrifice was offered once for all for us. Um, his, the entirety of Christ, body, soul, um, he offered everything that he is to save us on the cross. Uh, and didn't, you know, this idea of the giving everything that he didn't hold anything back, but this whole Holocaust to, to save us, to perfect the sacrifice for our salvation, to bring us to the Father. So just to kind of return to some words that Father Jacob Bertrand identified as important, as significant, uh, maybe just to tease out a further implication, I think that sometimes we read things in the Gospels about the Lord Jesus Christ, which make it sound like he came progressively into his Godhead, right? Or that he came progressively into the fullness of his Lordship, right? And, um, there's a long history or a long tradition of meditation on those passages. So uh, with respect to this reading, the idea that he learned obedience from what he suffered and that when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So that he was made perfect and that that is somehow fruitful for the church. So just like a couple of small thoughts on those things. One, when St. Thomas reads these passages in continuity with the tradition that goes before him, he says simply that, you know, we can rule out anything that sounds like adoptionism. So adoptionism is the teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ came only over time to understand who he was and what he was sent to do. So St. Thomas says we can rule that right out because the Lord, he says, is the principle of our salvation. So he's the principle of our knowledge. He's the principle of our virtue. And if he's the principle, then he has all of those things to the utmost extent. In a, in a kind of quasi-infinite way. Because if the Lord is lacking in any of those things, then he can't communicate them to us. Basically, you can't give what you don't have. So the Lord has the fullness of knowledge. The Lord has the fullness of virtue. The Lord has the fullness of grace. So we're not going to say that, you know, the Lord got better and better and he's getting better every day still. <clears throat> but he says that there is a, a kind of progress that we can observe in the Lord's life and that the Lord uh, exhibits perfections that are proper to each age that he passes through. So maybe you've heard people talk about some of the um, Gnostic Gospels, uh, one of which is the Infancy Gospel of St. Thomas. So this would be written by a Gnostic, which is to say a heretic, so as to advance a teaching contrary to the Orthodox faith. Um, so the Church knew about these things. Uh, the Church knew that they were wrong and condemned them. Um, but uh, sometimes you hear it said on the History Channel, like, oh yeah, the Church is suppressing knowledge of the true Jesus. It's like, no, 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 Church isn't. Um, and one of the things that you encounter in these particular Gnostic texts is that Jesus does things that are like wildly inappropriate for his age, uh, wildly inappropriate for any age, but wildly inappropriate, especially for his present age. So like, he's like a little kid and he forms these pigeons out of clay and then he animates them and they fly around. And then in like another encounter, one of the other local kids kind of like messes with what the Lord Jesus is doing. So the Lord strikes him dead. Um, so you have this like very weird uh, Lord, like way before his time, He's exhibiting, you know, the kind of smiting power of, of a savior far beyond his years. Um, so it's St. Thomas says that at each age, our Lord exhibits the, like the appropriate excellence. So it's not that he's lacking in anything, but that he kind of gives expression at each time uh, at the, in the way in which it's most appropriate. So like, for instance, when he's 12, 
it says that um, you know they were amazed at his questions and at the responses that he provided when he was lost to his parents for three days and subsequently discovered talking with the teachers in the temple. We don't hear at the age of 12 that he gives the bread of life discourse, for instance. Okay, So, so we can observe some real progress in the Lord's life, but it's the Lord giving expression to his perfection of knowledge, his perfection of virtue, his perfection of grace at the proper time. Why? Well, because he's the principle of our maturation. So that's where this last line comes in. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So we who follow after him can expect for our lives to assume a similar shape. Not because, you know, we're suppressing the fullness of our deity until such time as we choose to reveal it in the transfiguration or in the resurrection, um, but because we ourselves are led through the steps that our Lord trod first. So um, just because our Lord is perfect doesn't mean that he doesn't live a genuine, an integral human existence, and as a result of which we can hope and we can actually live a genuine human existence by following after him, following in his footsteps. Of course, one of the great themes of the letter to the Hebrews is the priesthood of Christ, and we get just a little taste of that here, Christ the high priest, where we hear that he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. We often think of the many duties of the priesthood, and we can be tempted, uh, in fact, it's a very great risk, to remove the principal duties of the priesthood. So this is to talk about the priest as a community builder, or a social worker, or um, or, or a special caretaker of the poor and those in need. And those are all important roles of the priesthood, but they are not the essential part of the priesthood. The essential part of the priesthood is to offer sacrifice on behalf of God's, God's people. So to be a mediator between God and his people, um, to do penance for God's people's sins, and to offer to God the prayers of the people. And so here we have a sense of this work of priesthood, the coming and going of priesthood, which is to to return in and out from the holy places, taking therein um, the prayers of the people and offering them to God. He offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Um, so we, here, we have the, here we have the prayer of Christ um, to the Father, which is a most excellent prayer. So Father Gregory was talking about the excellence of each stage in Christ's life. We can also talk about this with with respect to the ways that we consider Christ um, and Christ being most excellent in those categories, so not just category of age, but thinking of Christ as high priest. Christ is the greatest high priest, the most excellent high priest. He is the priest who perfectly offers prayers and supplications. Um, So as we continue, uh, as we prepare rather to enter into Holy Week, um, thinking about the role of Christ as high priest, the offering he's going to make his priesthood um, is very important. And to pray for our own priests, to think of our own priests as being imitators of that work, men who embody in their lives um, this call, this duty, this um, special obligation of mediation above it. every other thing a priest does. So Father Gregory, why don't you lead us into the gospel? A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Some Greeks who had come to worship at the Passover feast came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, 
and where I am, there also will my servant be. The Father will honor whoever serves me. I am troubled now, yet what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it was for this purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd there heard it and said it was thunder. But others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come for my sake, but for yours. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this, indicating the kind of death he would die. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So every believer has these verses that are near and dear to their hearts, and I've spoken of this verse on the podcast before, um, but but here it is again. Amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. I think it's important for every believer to have one of those verses that just encapsulates the gospel for them, to be able to express um the heart of Jesus's teaching in in a mere phrase. It's a very difficult thing to do, actually. It's very easy to start talking about our faith and begin with something like the rosary, um, which, of course, you know, is a presentation, the mysteries of Christ's life. But but that we need, my point here is just to say that we need succinct ways to talk about the heart of the gospel and particular verses of scripture offer us that. And I think this is one of those verses because the mystery of Christianity is that we will be fulfilled insofar as we die to ourselves. And that doesn't mean to hate oneself, but it means to privilege the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, whatever it is exactly. I can't even say exactly how they say it up here, but to privilege the law of the Lord and um, the covenant that God has extended with us to to every other commitment and covenant and and care and law that we have uh, in our lives. And so the believer then who has truly adopted this gospel or who is truly inviting someone else into it is to imitate the grain of wheat. Of course, one of the reasons why this verse is so profound is because of its Eucharistic imagery. I remember one time um, we were gathered for a mass at St. Mary's and the Christian brother who was the president of the college was speaking um, before or after the mass. I'm just offering a few remarks and he exhorted us to pay attention to what happens to the bread at mass. It's very beautiful and I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. But he he said, first, the bread is brought forward, then it's offered, then it's broken, and then it's shared. And it's in this mystery of giving over all the gifts that we have, returning them to God, as it were, allowing them to be offered, um, that is sanctified on his holy altar, allowing ourselves to be broken, uh, and then and then the gifts of the kingdom can bear forth, can be spread out in our lives. Um, so I offer that to you as we uh, prepare for the great feast of the Eucharist, that is Holy Thursday, the inauguration of the Lord's uh, Supper, um, the inauguration of the Eucharist, the mystery of the Lord's Supper, the feast of the Lord's Supper. We can say all these things about it, the Last Supper. As we prepare to observe this feast again, to pay attention to what happens to the bread at Holy Mass and to embody this action in our own lives. Everything that well, this is my, you know, take note, Father Patrick, about what I'm going to say. Everything that Father Patrick says is true in that, in that moment. Uh, everything that he... Can we stop uh, this episode? It, That's enough. It is finished. It's good for me. Uh, everything that Father, that Father <laughs> Patrick just said is absolutely true. And a great segue 
into what I'm going to say. Uh, I think, you know, often we, we can read these passages and we can read these passages that stick out in our minds. Uh, these passages that are important to us as this one is to Father Patrick and I'm sure others and, and miss some of the immediacy because they're familiar. The things that we love are often, you know, before us often. And they, the familiarity people say breeds contempt, but also familiarity kind of at times can dull our readiness to perceive something new. Uh, But if we look at what our Lord is saying in these moments leading up to, leading up to his passion, there's an immediacy and there's also a a presence, not in the sense of he's here with me, but in the sense of time where we're, we're operating in the present time. Our Lord is speaking about a, uh, something to come, but also something that has arrived. His time has his time is is coming, and it's and it's here to offer himself um, for for us. Uh, this ought to turn our attention to our own lives, especially with respect to this gospel. As Father Patrick explained, that the 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 heart or the core of the Christian life is centered around this this death to self, not as something, not as, as self loathing or self hating, but as as a way to allow our Lord's grace to transform us and to tr- make us into the men and women who he's created us to be. The The reality for the Christian is that just as our Lord is speaking with a sense of immediacy, this this command to die to self so that we can rise with Christ is is something that's on, on offer now. It's something that we have to give ourselves to now um, each day of our lives. It's not something off in the future. We shouldn't be wondering, when should I do this? Have I done this? Um, but am I doing this now? Am I doing this each day when I when I wake up? Am I offering my my life myself to the Lord? Am I doing it in the moments that are good and easy and beautiful? Am I thanking God for these? Am I doing it in the moments that are tough and difficult? Um, am I asking for God's help and grace in these moments um, to to put our Lord first? To put our Lord first in our lives at each moment um, is what is is what is on offer here. And I love that in this moment too, the the Father speaks. Uh, you know, there are three times in the gospel when the father speaks at the baptism, at the transfiguration, and when our Lord speaks about his death here in the gospel of John. And it's a great reminder that, that by this, by this death and this Christian paradox of life from death of dying to ourselves, but rising in Christ, that, that we're united to, to the father, to the Trinitarian love. We, we become, uh, you know, the sort of fulfillment of the prodigal son in our own lives, return to him who's waiting to receive us, um, so as we're entering into Holy Week, remember that it's not just something that we do during Holy Week, a remembering of the passion and entering into that, but is at the heart of the Christian life. So just to kind of round out the scoring on this reading, I just wanted to focus on one of the last verses in the gospel. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And I guess uh, the reason for which I find this striking is because um, it's a causal claim, right? So the Lord is doing something, uh, but it's not the way in which we would ordinarily describe doing something. (laughs) So the Lord is going to rise from the dead, okay? He did rise from the dead. That's a past tense thing. But in the context of this passage, it's a future tense thing. Uh, And when he does, he will draw everyone to himself. So he's suggesting... Not like these are two separate acts, but I'm going to rise from the dead, and in so rising, I'm going to assert a kind of gravity, and things will be drawn to me as if by matter of course. And the question for me is why, right? So why, why does it matter that the only begotten Son of God took human flesh, suffered and died, and rose from the grave? Well, what's like the, 
how is that applied or how does that cash out in the life of the individual believer? And certainly in the scriptures, we encounter a variety of rich images, right? Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, as we just heard, uh, or the way in which St. Paul describes the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, this idea that Christ is the first fruits, and then who comes next? All those who belong to him, right? So there's there are already these rich images, but the one here, for whatever reason, is especially striking. And I think that what it, what it brings to our attention is just how very good the resurrection is, right? And you can think about this from your own experience of love, genuine love, we just, we don't want it to cease, right? We experience limits to love as vexing, as saddening, as dispiriting even. Um, so you want to love somebody perfectly. You want to love somebody without, you know, um, unnecessary obstacle or impediment. You want to show somebody that you love them. You want that to be received. You want to have it reciprocated. You too want to have it register as such. Like you want, you want your love to be perfect. But the fact that we can die uh, casts a pall on all love, right? Uh, the shadow of death, obscures our appreciation of our entry into our delight in relationships but the lord is saying i'm going to rise from the dead and when i do i will draw everyone to myself which is to say that the love you experience will be the means by which it'll be the way by which it'll be the kind of motive force by which you are drawn ultimately to the perfection of love a love unending um yeah in the everlasting sunrise, as St. Augustine describes it, of the beatific vision, right, in which we will all sing harmoniously, amen, alleluia. So, I just love it that, like, a thing's goodness can itself be a cause of our reaction, uh, that the resurrection is so irresistibly good that we find ourselves tending towards it, provided only that we consent to and cooperate with the grace that God gives. So that for me is, yeah, I just find that very encouraging and very beautiful. Uh, so if you are at a loss, perhaps, for how best to imagine heaven or how best to tend thereunto, think of the fact that the Lord rose from the grave so that you need never be separated from him. Of course, we're praying for you as we wrap up this Lenten season or as we head in really to the height of its mysteries. Um, thanks for all that you do to support the podcast. Those of you who are benefactors on uh, Patreon, we're grateful. Um, check out our merch shop, although maybe you've given up buying cool things for Lent, so you can do that in the Easter season and fill your basket. I mean, who knows? It's probably every one of your children probably wants to find in their Easter basket a God's planning mug. I, I just suspect that that's what kids, that's what kids throughout the world want. It's on really Easter the fanny Sunday. pack. No, God's planning mug. So, you know, just a possibility that I mentioned to you. Uh, know always of our prayers and support. And let's conclude this episode with a prayer. Bless, O Lord, your people who long for the gift of your mercy and grant that what at your prompting they desire they may receive by your generous gift. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Until next time, God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.